Hello, listeners. Welcome to Decoding Entrepreneurs, a series of one-to-one conversations with successful Canadian entrepreneurs, founders, and innovators about their personal journeys and how they achieved success. These are open and wide-ranging conversations, providing insights into who they are, the steps they've taken, when and where their entrepreneurial journey started, and why they do what they do. My objective is to share with you not only their journeys and insights, but also decode some of their personal habits, tactics, and routines into actionable insights that you can apply in your own life and your personal journey towards achieving even greater success. I'm Thomas Schmidt, and welcome to Decoding Entrepreneurs. Hey everybody, Thomas Schmidt here. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Decoding Entrepreneurs. My guest today is Pascal Pilome. Pascal is a veteran tech entrepreneur, CEO, and investor. Besides being an entrepreneur and technology enthusiast, Pascal also happens to have an insatiable appetite for music. He is currently the CEO of Lander, the world's leader in music post-production and digital content management. Traditional audio mastering is done by one or more mastering engineers in a specialized mastering studio with analog and or digital equipment. Unfortunately, there is only a small portion of musicians who can actually afford to pay for a sound engineer. Lander's mastering process, however, is completely automated through the use of algorithms based on automated mastering research, thus democratizing music mastering and making it easily accessible to musicians all around the world. Since launching in 2014, Lander has helped over 2.5 million musicians all around the world who have collectively mastered and released over 12 million tracks via the platform. If you're a music creator, you really should check it out. Prior to Lander, Pascal was the founder and CEO of Averna, a global electronic device test equipment vendor. He is also the president of YUL Ventures, which he founded and has managed since 2013, and is an early stage investment fund for technology companies through which Pascal actively supports new entrepreneurs in Quebec, investing in great founders and technology companies in the early stages of commercialization. Over the years, Pascal has raised over $60 million Canadian equity and debt, and in July of this year, Lander closed a $26 million Canadian Series B funding round for its audio mastering platform. Pascal started his professional life as a software engineer, later earning an MBA from HEC Montreal, and is the recipient of multiple awards, including CNBC Upstart 25, Deloitte's Fast 50, Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year Award, Investus Among Quebec CEO of the Year Award, Rizzo Capital's CEO of the Year Award, Canada's Top 40 Under 40, and Arista's Young Entrepreneur of the Year. If that wasn't enough, Pascal also happens to hold three patents, so really impressive. Please join me in my wide-ranging conversation with Pascal Pilon. Well, Pascal, thank you very much uh, for doing this. I really uh, appreciate it. Um, I recently read a quote uh, you gave in an interview uh, where you were asked to explain the success of, uh, of your company. Uh, and the quote was, young people think that you need a business plan, and although this is important, uh, you need to target an unmet need for uh, potential co- consumers and give them a solution that they are ready to pay for. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, well, uh, I've been in business now for 25 years, and, uh, and I started as an engineer. And oftentimes, as an engineer, I'd be looking at how things were done, and I'd be looking for a better way to build it. And over the years, I realized that the easiest thing to sell is the thing that people are craving for already. And I also realized that when you try to sell a product to to people, uh, they might find it interesting at first, but what they end up doing really is tied to the time that they have and the priorities that they set for it. So you have to, to basically meet the need of users that they're really feeling a pain for, yep. that, that they're craving for. So... 
when uh, whenever I invest into uh, a product or look at a product, I really try to see if a user is intensively using something and if the solution that would be bringing is providing a significant gain on that, that he can appreciate. Not something that provides a minimal gain after having to move from his former habit to something new, know, something that will really make a, a significant difference to such a point that that person will probably talk about it to people around. So it's, I'm looking for people, for, for solutions to bring to market that clients will not only appreciate and, and, and engage with, but that they will also talk to, to others because that's pretty much the only affordable way to spread a product in a population. So when you're searching for these products, is it uh, something that you particularly use or do you, do you sort of look at your engineer, through your engineering lens at products in the marketplace say, you know, I can make this better or this product could be made better? How do you, how do you find these ideas or these products that you think, because I'm assuming these are products that already exist that people are paying for as opposed to are you creating a product or would you create a product that doesn't exist but you feel that, you know, you know, a lot of uh, people have this idea, I'll build a product and, of course, people will use it. Well, that's not always the case. It's not the theory of, you know, if you build it, so they shall come, right? It's when you, when you show a product to somebody and say, oh, that's interesting. What you want to hear is not that's interesting. What you want to hear is when can I have it, right? Yeah. Uh, so how do, you, how do you identify a potential product idea? Uh, first of all, I read a lot. So I read every day, every week all year long, all the time, about multiple dimensions of, of, of the economy and the business so, and technology. So I now being focused in the music industry, I read the news from the music industry, but I follow many trails. I follow the trails of what labels are trying to do. So you'll always find people who say that they are disrupting their specific niche within the industry. So whether in our case it's a label, whether it's a producer, whether it's a recording artist or it's a marketer, an influencer, people have multiple point of views and they'll share tidbits of what's original in their approach. So I'm looking to, to I read a lot of these and, yep. I, and I listen a lot to what people say worked and didn't work. And when I appreciate the fact that this must be providing a huge difference for a customer, then I go back and I think, how was it made? So it's really a combination of reading a lot, paying attention to how people typically probably react to a new offering, and then ask myself, how was it made? And because my background is a software engineer and I've always stayed very close to how things are made from a technology standpoint, both from electronics and software, uh, I can typically reverse engineer a lot of things just I'd say, I'd say conceptually to evaluate how much effort was involved. And oftentimes there's not that many efforts involved. A lot of the effort is about building the brand, communicating what it does, getting people to, to, uh, to, to accept it and to engage with it and so forth. So, um, but I, so I do that for the music industry right now, but I do that in many other industries as well. For instance, at Lander, even if we, we are a music tech company, it's first and foremost a technology company. The, techno the content uh, basically managed by the tech company is music. Right. But because the learning curve is such a big deal for our users and it feels so complex to them 
and most of the things in the world are like that. People are always overwhelmed by the number of things they need to do in order to complete something of a, a professional grade. So we deliberately, over the last five years, have created blogs to talk about things, how things are done, and basically make them uh, accessible for everyone. So I believe that the more you invest into simplifying products and explaining to people prior to that how easy they are to use, the more people will use them. And then what they make of your product is going to be what you wanted and other things you did not expect. And then you pay attention to that. So I'd say the core of new products is about reading for the stimulation of ideas and psychology for the understanding of how people will be experiencing those actual products. And just by thinking about that all the time, you realize this works, this doesn't work. So it's a continuous process. But I must say, uh, it gets very efficient. Years after years after years, it's getting easier to see that. And sometimes, and I want to go with innovation, it doesn't need to be a big deal. Innovation is a, is a big word. But typically, it's a new combination that haven't been tried. Right. Like yeah. for a few weeks back, a month ago, we launched what we call a rent-to-own plugin. Okay. What's a rent-to-own plugin? It's basically just like former plugins that's been, that's been, that are being for sale for the last 20 years. But typically, a plugin, it's a virtual instrument that people use to create music and modify their sounds. People love it. But 95% of the time, they're pirated. They're just too expensive. Right, so they're pirated. Why? Because well, they typically are sold for a few hundred bucks. Right. So a kid seeing a few hundred bucks, seeing the availability of like a pirated version, will do that. So that's a big deal. The rent-to-own model is a bit inspired by subscription model, where you let people pay on a monthly basis a much lower fee. But because this has been tried again in the past for those plugins, people didn't go on with subscriptions because for that specific thing. They want to own it. So feeling that they rented it psychologically mindset, right? didn't, didn't, didn't work that well. But a few years back, another company came with that idea of offering what we call rent to own. So basically, if, you, if the product is 200 bucks, you'll sell it for 20 months at $10. So it's kind of financing, but it's not said financing because psychologically, if people felt that they were taking a new sort of debt, they would not be embracing it. So rent to own gives you the impression that you can pay 10 bucks every month. Uh, you stop when you want. You can pause. You yep. can resume later on. When you're done and you've reached 200 bucks, then you own the actual product itself. Oh, and that's that, an interesting twist. Okay. So, so, yeah. so it's not a big disruption. Right. What changed is the accessibility, the financial accessibility of this thing. You spend 10 bucks and you de-risked it. And that is a bit inspired from what iTunes did. Because when you think about how iTunes is selling you individual songs yep. or episodes in a season of a series, they do this. You pay for one, but you won't pay more than the actual cost of the season or the actual CD yep. at a certain point, right? Yeah, that's true. So it's, it's basically very advantageous for a customer, not so much for the seller, but that's still removing a lot of the friction of making a big decision. Yeah, and and you know when you talk about um, the piracy, I, I think about uh, the example with Adobe and Adobe, uh, which you know Photoshop, for instance. Photoshop used to be it was eight nine hundred dollars uh, 
can't remember exactly, but it was an expensive piece of software. And of course, you know, most people, well, a lot of people didn't necessarily use it. They weren't necessarily professionals, but, you know, kids and whatever uh, would use it uh, once in a blue moon. They weren't going to pay $800, $1,000 for the software. So a lot of it was pirated, right? And Adobe decided to change the model, and now it's all subscription-based, right? So it's 10 bucks a month, right? That's hard to do. And and now the, their model though is pay forever, right? Because of course they they say, well, you you know constantly on evolution, so you get you know version uh, updates through that. So that's their business model. But uh, their 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 business has exploded, and and the the growth has been exponential over the last number of years. Adobe is making huge uh, revenues as a result. Um, but yeah, it, but, it but makes a lot of sense. But not companies achieve to move from. Selling uh, perennial licenses, uh, of course, yeah, because typically revenue really dive for a number of years, and, so and you have to be ready for that. And it's not always completely embraced, right? Because there's people that are on the other side of the coin, which is, you know, I want to own it, as you said, right? And and I don't want to constantly be paying for this. So you know, there's the old school, right? Which is you, you're going to have a little bit of resistance on this, yeah, uh, of course, right? But, but Adobe is a very specific example and one that shows that. I mean, people who use uh, Adobe Photoshop, for instance, they have so much knowledge yep. about the specifics of using it. Their workflows are into it as well. So yeah. Adobe had <coughs> special advantages yep. to be able to retain customers. Most companies that don't really have a very that strong a relationship with customers and their habits with uh, with the product can't do that as well. And um, so everybody aspires to be Adobe. And yeah. have a product like Photoshop. <laughs> yeah, so just so hard. Uh, I was going to suggest we talk about uh, Lander a little bit later, but since we we're already talking about, it, so what was, what did you see as the opportunity for Lander when you when you looked at the music business? Was it this uh, notion that um, you know self-publishing, of course, is now very accessible to people, right? Uh, the the whole industry is being changed. Uh, was it this notion that? The products and platforms that were out there were too complex for the average. Like, what what did, what did you see? What was the spark that that led you to create Lander? Well, first of all, uh, the invention was made in the UK at Queen Mary University okay. by a guy, a guy called Stuart Mendridge. And um, when I came across Stuart's invention, um, he had a very compelling demo in which uh, you could see a song made by the band The Killers, track by track. Uh, basically instrument by instrument in a mixing environment. And using the technology, the album, the, the song would be automatically mixed, mm-hmm. fine, mi- finally mixed, mixed down and mastered. And it really sounded fantastic. Okay. And just by spending enough attention to it uh, and talking to people who were used to doing mixing and the mastering sport process, you realize how complex it was to do that. Mm. So... Uh, uh, so basically the complexity of it, the cost of it as well, if you want to do that process as well, you have to have a room that is sonically neutral so that you, you're, you're in a position to really balance this, the different sounds. So sounding professional is an expensive thing. It's complex or expensive. So when I realized as well in other stats, when I looked at the, the stuff on SoundCloud and YouTube, I quickly did a survey of the songs that I would see. And most of them weren't mastered. It's easy to see. It's really the, the balance of sounds, it's yep. the energy, the loudness, there's a number of like features. And you could see that basically people were, get, going, were sharing music 
and that music never got that final final polish right. that makes it pop yep. and makes it it makes a very big difference in engagement with the end users. So according to my estimates based on research I did, about 3% of music makers were mastering their music. So it felt to me that nobody really ever had the feeling of finishing a song professionally. Because of the cost and the complexity, right? Because of the complexity. Yeah. So, and, and the fact as well that this process could be automated on our part also enabled us to give a risk-free try before you buy experience. Right. So we could give a 30-second preview of what the result would be. And then people could say, hey, should I pay 10 bucks or not to get this? And I, I, I figured out this would work. So that's how we started the company. So Stuart moved to Montreal uh, along with another founder, Justin Evans. So the three of us started the company. And, uh, and then we decided that... How, how, did, how did you find him, by the way, Stuart? A steward that was uh, an incubator here in Montreal okay. called Tandem Lounge, yeah. uh, who are specialized in that. So it's a Montreal-based um, small venture capital firm that's mm-hmm. focused on finding inventions around like dozens of universities around and the world. And commercializing them, right. And they, and they don't actually commercialize them per se. What they do, they bring their main researchers here in Montreal, and then Elga Season, who drive that fund, make sure that the technology itself is, is a little bit more matured. Okay. And also the understanding of where the target customers and market and so forth is there. So he helps those companies and founders build a business plan. And, uh, and in our case, because we were the first one that happened that way, we did that in unison. So we worked together to, to launch this thing. And typically, uh, technologies like those, they end up within hardware products. It's a technology, an algorithm, something that gets embedded that under idea. license, yeah. And that was kind of the play. But uh, I also envision uh, with the, the, my co-founders to launch a cloud platform because I wanted it to be useful and usable on a PC, right, with mm-hmm. it as a software piece. Yep. But we didn't want it to be pirated easily. So a cloud service would force people for every transaction to go there. So it's because of the piracy part that we yep. decided to put, it to, to put it totally cloud-based. Now, once we've seen that, we wanted something that wouldn't need any explanation because if 97% of people didn't finish their song, the last thing we wanted to bring in is the friction of complexity. forcing them to learn. We didn't right. want to be a source of complexity. Yep. So we came up with a drag-and-drop process of taking the song that you just made yourself drag and drop it on, the, on the, the lender cloud, a process that's now very popular, but six years ago it was, it was much less popular. And then the song gets uploaded, and within two minutes, you will be able to press on play and A-B test your song before and after it's been processed by lender. And just that really generated the wow effect for people and then people started talking about this, and it led us to be uh, to have today something like 2.7 million users. So it's really making a huge difference. The song before and after, yep. if you are the song creator and you put it through Lander, you will certainly want to have the mastered version of it because it just sounds better. It's you, but it's you, you know, 
with uh, I would say a little bit of makeup and stuff that makes you look well. It's the much final. It's, yeah, it's the final polish. I think that goes with you know whether it's music, a photography, right? If you take a, a photograph, it's going to come out very flat looking, right? And it's really the artistry, sort of speak, happens after the photo is taken to to really to to enhance it to to really bring it to life, so to yeah. speak, right? And yeah. that's you know uh, an analogy, I guess, to music as well, right? You have the raw recording. Uh, but you can really bring it to life with uh, this kind of tweaking and editing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, and the Im- imagery is very similar to 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 audio. Yeah. It's uh, it's a lot of signal processing, lots of maths. Yeah. But in the end, what we perceive is uh, that basically how it excites our senses, yep. right? And that's what mastering does. And, and that's why this first product was a big success. And we've been fortunate to have that success. If you recall, we, we wanted to do something that was either a license or that. Early in the get-go, we decided not to go with licensing this. We felt it would become a distraction and not as large a market. Yep. So focus was also a key point there. And then we obsessed about removing friction, removing friction of having to explain. So we, we really, so Lander, the next thing that we did is we paid a lot of attention to how people went to our website and liked what they saw, the visuals, mm. right? So we, we really spoke to users to understand what would engage them, what would uh, incite them to come back. And also we talked to them about what version of the songs they preferred and so forth. So for, it, so, and for years, we've been doing continuous improvement. And that's the other very important aspect in business. Yeah, it's forever wanting to improve. You can't sit on your laurels, so to speak, right? Yeah, yep. it's. You, in fact, you just have to see this like going to the gym. Yep. There's no real point in life, a moment in life when you can stop. Well, it's like you started the conversation off with, right? You're constantly looking and reading. It's we're we're constantly learning as well in life, right? You never stop, or yep. you should never stop, right? Um, I'm gonna change gears a little bit. When people ask you, what do you do? What do you what do you tell them? Well, I define myself as a, as a software entrepreneur mm-hmm. and as a, basically a, a very curious person. I, I see myself building companies with a very strong focus right now on Lander. Uh, that company is basically, its mission is to help, it's to empower musicians, enabling them to finish their songs and getting heard through social media, on streaming services and whatnot. So, I, again, I think educating people without having them even re- observe that they're learning is the, is the way to go. So conversations do that, right? A guided yeah. conversation will, will reveal someone in an interview, for example. But same thing for a musician. If you think about the journey... Yep. of trying to learn something and then create something and then improve something and finishing it with their, in a relationship with somebody else and then come up with something and then sharing it and then, get, then getting people to consume it and then see how they react and understand why they react and then improve what you did. All of these things, it's very dislocated today in the music industry. For a music maker, yeah. it's, all of these things are conceptually, they make sense. But there is no, no real way to bring people together that way. So that's my focus. In fact, and I, I'm, I'm really seeing myself as someone trying to incorporate uh, the psychology of users 
right? How they, how they like something and dislike something else. Remove friction as well. Trying to feel like a breeze to users so that they move from one thing to another without even feeling the transition. And the third thing is really understanding the competition for people's attention. So when we say something to people, it has to be very efficient. And, and when we design software and we, or videos and that we present that to people, I always try to see it as it needs to be paced at just the right pace so that people won't take their phone out of their pocket to look at their messages while it plays. Mm. So that's also something, just sustain it. So pacing it so we've got people's attention. We don't need that much, yep. but when we have you, we want you to be there. And it should never feel like a homework as well. It's not because you owe it to us. Right. It's because you're just engaged with it. So it's, it's, it's really focused on the consumer mentality. And the purpose, I think the purpose uh, why Lander exists is really important. And you hit it right out of you know, uh, the onset when you said it's really to help all this uh, music to be published, right? And that's really, if people understand why, why does Lander exist, I mean, that, that you, you just nailed it right there, right? And we expanded that. So, yeah. one, one, so what I like about workflows in general is that they just use a simple word, a work, a simple word, which is flow, mm-hmm. right? And work means I have an intention to complete something. Right. So when somebody finishes a master on Lander using us, what's his, his next intention? You know, the person could want to get his friend to hear it, to get their comments. Or that person can say, wow, I'm done. Let's, uh, let's sell that song. And then we enable that as well. So now Lander, why it's a platform is that we're connecting the dots of many traditional things that people have been consuming as music creators. Right. But everything's one click away. Everything stays on the platform. Everything is copy protected as you do. And when you release that music on Spotify, Apple Music, right from within Lander, you can collect those royalties and get, get paid back immediately without doing anything. So from a single place, you can engage and, and basically take any DAW environment you have, whether it's Ableton, Pro Tools, or whatever, and you, you just install Lander, and everything can be just workflowed simultaneously, simply, in relationship with others as well. Yep. Uh, what's the hardest part about running a company? It's people. <laughs> it's people. It's people... Uh, well, it goes back to what we were talking before we started the interview uh, yeah. Yeah, about how difficult it uh, can be, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's people because, I mean, people, everybody has his own agenda, his set of ambitions. And uh, even if you try to build a company that thinks, that puts people first, uh, people will have, uh, you know, some things will, some things will happen in their life. Uh, the company also, as it grows, is a different environment. Yep. So some people won't, won't find themselves as much. Some people will that used to be good at something won't feel to be as good, and, uh, and you know as well positioned to help the company to to perform what it should be uh, as it grows as well. And the other thing is the market in tech is super competitive now. So the expect the expectancy of having people stay with us for ten years. Is uh, is absolutely realistic. So we have to think about that's gone out the window pretty much everywhere yeah, now, right? Yeah. yeah. So so what it brings is a change of context, yep. and it's also the perspective of knowledge. You know, the people who were here six years ago, I mean, they're a handful. Yeah. So <laughs> it's uh, so the 
I would, I, let's not call it a tradition, but I would yeah. say the perspective of what the product was and where it is and where it should be, more and more it's being built by people who've been here for two years, yeah. a year, maybe three years if we're well, it's lucky. A, it's evolution, right? So companies evolve, people evolve, relationships evolve, right? It's yeah. a constant. That's yeah. the one constant, right? Yeah, but the competition for talent is so strong that it reduces the average tenure within a company. Yep. It's true everywhere. Fortunate yep. enough, we, we went to the music space, so a lot of people here, like over 17% of our employees play music. And we do two concerts a year with employees and so forth. And the point being, we have elements that enable us to keep people here longer than they would if they were elsewhere. Right. But uh, it's a challenge in the market for that. Yeah, no, of course. That, I think that that's everywhere today. Um, let's change the pace a little bit. What was your childhood like? Where did you Where did you grow up? Uh, I was uh, I was born in Montreal. Yep. And then my parents, when I was four, moved to Laval. But I stayed in Montreal at school. So I went to private schools. Uh, and then I went to CGEP. Uh, listen, I had the suburb uh, experience. My parents had a cottage. I was skiing in the weekend. So I had a brother and a sister. So nothing very special there. Were you, an outgo- my- were you an outgoing kid? Were you a shy kid? Uh- I was somewhere in between. I was, uh, but my father was a very, um, I would say, commanding, commanding man. Uh, and he, uh, he was quite educated. So he was really insisting on our grades. Yep. And uh, so I would say for multiple reasons, I spent a lot of my youth reading books. I read and read and read. That's the thing that I and did And you continue to today. I mean, that was, I guess, foundational for you, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and my father was a big reader as well. And, you know, when I was 11, he started giving me his Business Week uh, magazines yeah. every week. And go figure, maybe there it was are. the cover page. <laughs> I, I, I started reading them. Yeah. And, and I did exactly what I said earlier on. I, even if a company I read about was not from an industry, I, I did not even know what I'd end up doing yep. in what industry. So... But the point is, I was always fascinated. Were you a curious, curious kid? Curious. I was yeah. uh, very curious. Yeah. Very curious. Yeah. Always loving, loving games as well. Uh, board games and stuff like that. And video games, of course. But I was always uh, uh, impressed by leaders, by CEOs and so forth. And I never even thought I had that in me. But I studied how they talked about themselves, their company, and... Uh, and, and that led me to read, and basically I, I, I paid attention to that. It brought me at a certain point to do an MBA uh, a few years after graduating from uh, software engineering, computer software engineering, uh, and uh, reading guys like uh, Jack Welch, Straight from the Gut, which is uh, a book that really, uh, really uh, inspired me as I was a young entrepreneur. Yep. Um, so I'd say as a kid, my father was definitely my, my biggest uh, influence. What, what did your parents do? Uh, my father was, uh, was a math professor at HEC Montreal, so okay. at the University in Statistics. But uh, he also had started in his uh, 30s a uh, software business to, to basically the old ERP systems for hospitals and car dealerships. And he did that for years, but he was not very good on compromising with things. So he kept that for maybe 15 years. But I was a kid and I saw that. 
And, uh, and I guess that was part of what I felt was a possibility to run a business of my own. So, and he was really pushing me for that. But he first he pushed me to, to try to do an MBA. And then I did. He said, as an engineer, you have such a narrow way of thinking, right? So you need to broaden it up and an MBA would be good for you. Do you think he's sort of... Do you think he was sort of uh, imprinting his own sort of perspective, meaning that, you know, that's maybe how he was and he saw his own limitation? Yeah, I think, you know what? I think my father saw his own limitations and felt I could do better than he did because of the way that he was, was really bad at making compromises with others. So I would say his, his ability to adapt and take feedback in and improve was very limited. So he never was a good businessman for that. He would have needed a very good partner to be able to compensate for that. And that's not what he did. So, um, so he, just, he, he deceased 10 years ago. But uh, he, saw my, he saw me grow my first business yep. in those days. And uh, I really remember how he was commenting at every step of it and the difference between who I was and who he was. Yep. And I think he was also figuring things out as we went along. So it was a... I'd say the relationship was much better in the end than it was at the, in my, in my uh, teenager years. As for my mother, she was more like a, a loving person, super empathetic and listening and so forth. So she was a big provider of love. Yep, nurturing. And that's yep. the thing I yep. always felt I had, lots yep. of love. So. Yep. Um, so I guess in terms of self-confidence, that was useful as well. How, how did you decide to go into... Engineering. What was the, the your dad was in on the mass? I mean, what was was there a spark? Was it just a, a like? There was no spark. <laughs> there was no spark. I went. I went into an engineering because, frankly, I was I was a spoiled kid. Yep. And I didn't know what to do. And when you go to polytechnical school in Montreal in engineering, you don't have to choose in what uh, specialty you'll move in uh, in the first year. So to me, it was basically punting the decision for a year later. And that was part of the, one of the, the, the programs that I knew my father would look, uh, approve. I, would approve and, yeah. see, and, see, and think highly of me. So, so I went there and, uh, and I was still, I guess, partying too much and not paying enough attention to school. I didn't like studying like many. So, um, and I didn't, in fact, I never liked attending classes. That's always been an issue for me, paying attention for hours and hours. I've realized after the years that I'm more like an, uh, a self-learner. Yep. True books and stuff that I can do. So uh, I went there and I started my second year in civil engineering. Jeez. Why? Because I was told it was the easiest of the bunch. So for no reason, the, the least laziness, friction. <laughs> least friction, I went there. But after a month in there, I realized I hated it. So then I, I recollected... Uh, all the things I did during my first year and we had a number of courses and I remember my only programming class I did that I really liked in fact I really felt engaged in it so I figured let's go into computer engineering and that's what I did and that I really liked from the get go so I discovered a passion for this just a little bit like out of luck uh, and I moved right in the second session of the second year in this and then I became I guess it's very, I, I was an, always good in maths and software is very close to, mm -hmm. to maths yep. in essence. So, so I, I found a thing I really, really liked uh, accidentally. 
if you will say. And then I started working. I graduated, did a first job, second job. Uh, but I felt after a few years, like after three years, I started feeling that it was a very limited situation to be in. It's not that I didn't like doing software and so forth, but I, I realized I wasn't so good having a bus. I said I could not work for a bus. It, 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 I felt dissatisfied. Okay. And, uh, and I guess, in, so I mean, you gotta, go, you gotta figure this as being like 1995, 1996, 1998. So in Montreal, it wasn't Silicon Valley either. You know, I would say the environment, the businesses I was in, I didn't feel that they were exciting enough. And I, I had started my MBA that uh, I could be part of something bigger. I think that was also part of it. If I had been into like a, a rocket ship of a startup then, yep. I would I'd probably be very happy and, and stay in there. Uh, and, but I ended up looking for a year, a year and a half for a business. And what I ended up doing is creating a competitor to the business I was working at for a day. So it, was a, it was a service company, engineering services company, building quality control systems uh, using test and measurement gears, PC-based, to basically measure physical properties of product being designed and manufactured, and then identifying where are the defects and which products were ready to be shipped to customers. So basically test and measurement gears. And... Uh, so I created a competitor, that, so that's back in 99, and I sold that in 2013. You had gone, but you had gone back to school uh, before that, right? So you had gone to... Yeah, to, to do an MBA. Yeah, so what was, the, what was the sort of the impetus for going back to school? Because number one, <laughs> you, were, you were already, uh, you had uh, started some company, right, uh, by this no, point? No, I started that after. Was it after? Okay, yeah. so, uh, but you, you, you talk about, you know, school was not your favorite thing, right? Yeah. Uh, and some entrepreneurs um, argue that, you know, school is not really important. To, it's not a critical thing to success, right? Uh, that you're better off. At, there's, there's both sides to this argument, right? But what was, what was your decision around going back and doing your MBA? What, where did that come from? Well, in 97, I started that MBA in 97. So I didn't know I was an entrepreneur. Honestly, it's obvious to me today. Yes. I didn't know it back then. Wait, I, I had no idea. Yes. I had no idea. Right. So when I decided to do an MBA, it was highly influenced by my father. Okay. But I also realized when I registered that, hey, maybe I can become a business guy as well. And also there was the fact that I've always studied in engineering, which is like 99% men. And then doing an MBA, it was a, a mixed class with people. So... I guess I was also missing the good old days of going to school and so forth, but I did it part-time, so at nighttime, so that stuff. I kept it's on even working. more challenging, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so I kept on doing both, but frankly, I was always good at school, so the number of hours I needed to study has never been very high for me. I'm right. a quick learner. So, uh, so I did that, and it really opened up my perspective on business. In fact, it simplified my understanding of how business were made and I realized I did not know. So for, to basically design companies and architect companies, the MBA enabled me to tour every function of a company to understand how it fits as a whole. So that was really, really good. And when I, after a year doing that MBA, I really became a different guy. 
because all the things I've been, I was reading then were even more like to the point of how, how to do these things. So in 99... Interesting, yeah. So really so transformation for exactly. you, right? Exactly. So, yeah. so I'd say in 98, I decided I could potentially build a competitor to the service business I was with within the provision of, of competitive, anti-competitive, the anti-competition agreement. Yep. So uh, I started studying what aspect of it don't I understand. And then I moved to add the operations for the business I was in. So I oversaw that. And then I oversaw profitability of everything. Yep. And then I did business development. So I, I, I changed my role and grew my role to take more and more things. And then when I left, I knew how to do everything. So I jumped. I jumped ship with two other guys. Yep. And uh, that's how we built Averna. And again, because I read and read and read, uh, I brought to that market um, a new type of leadership and I built the biggest test engineering system integrator in the world. So was Averna uh, an offshoot or a? Uh, no, hang on a second. So, so you had a you had a different company as well. You had uh, AVNR, right? Yeah. So that's a business I bought. Okay. While I was running Averna. Okay. Uh, I found a few inter- Montreal entrepreneurs that were working for a company called Walsh Automation. Okay. They were specialized in doing vision-based uh, robotic systems. Okay. So vision to detect position, robotics to move things. And uh, so we bought out the assets of Walsh with their team. And we call that Averna Vision and Robotics. And we had 60% and the three founders, they had 40% uh, amongst them. Right. And uh, so we kept that for a few years. We thought that uh, there would be uh, uh, synergies between our customer base and there in aerospace and a few other places like that. But it, I realized and discovered that the personas within those businesses were so different. Yep. There was no synergy, so we sold it back to them three years later right. to double down on the new software that we were designing, a SaaS business called Prologen, which stands for Product Intelligence. Okay. And that's probably one of my weakest performance <laughs> as a, as well, a guy <laughs> creating and introducing products because the idea was... Fantastic, in my opinion. Yeah, but that doesn't always, uh, you know, determine the success of things, right? I didn't spend yeah. enough time with you, with end users. If I had, you know, the company was doing multiple things. I also then in two thousand and eight bought Mind Ready Systems. It was a pretty big acquisition, so I became, I started managing too many things, and uh, I never spent enough time to re-optimize the specific piece of software that I felt was the jewel. Yep. Of my organization there, so um, so when I think about a big failure as a software uh, uh, entrepreneur, I'd say that piece of software. I really think that uh, if I if I knew then what I know now, I think I would have t- turned that into a big big success. And that piece of software was a very very tiny success within a company that was basically uh, an engineering service firm with some hardware. That had a lot of success. So I, I built a company to over 300 people with offices in the, in the States, in Mexico, in Japan, in China, in Hungary. And uh, so I was, but I, it was a very, very uh, big learning experience. Do you think the lack of focus was just because you took on too many things at once or was it you weren't delegating or, or what, do I, you, what do you think the failure was behind that? Um, I would say Overcome. definitely the execution was an issue. Right. Okay, I think the things we did 
made made sense. Uh, so, but we needed to execute better. So, it is possible that I, uh, I made my former company overinvest into his hardware business, and it became too big of a, a place to put attention uh, to really make the other pieces of the business grow together. So I'd say that piece, it was just too big. Now, delegation I've always done, but that's the other problem within a startup, politics, founders, investors, and so forth. It can become hard to manage at once. So if you don't manage expectations properly, and that's part of it, when you're overwhelmed by the number of products and initiatives and issues you have to deal, you're going to be spread it thin. Yep. And spread it thin not only to build a product and manage operations, but also manage investors and so forth. And then I did that for a few years, and I guess our execution was average on many fronts. And uh, at some point, it made no sense for me to stay there. Right. So I concluded that to sell my shares to uh, the private equity investor that was uh, the biggest investor there. And uh, that's when I started Lander. Mm. And, uh, you know, and when a company grows to a certain, a certain size and you don't have enough ownership in it to really uh, command a change of mind, basically a, a reset. In yep. mindsets, uh, if you only can influence a place and that place has turned very political, then it, it can become very difficult to, to bring yeah, it right, back. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so anyway, from that business standpoint, we ended up disagreeing on the strategy to go, to go forward. And that basically got me to leave the company. That being said, it was such a highly, highly intensive service company. It was really hard to scale. And that was bugging me, mm. bugging me like crazy. So uh, when I launched Lander, I was super happy to have for once a product solely focused. And I promised myself I would do better than what I did with Prologen the first time around. Yep. So the company now has a lot of focus. And it's much simpler. A business like this one, you don't manufacture products. You, you, the customer support is a virtual one, so yep. it's very easy. And so it's a much simpler operation. You don't have inventory, for say. Yeah. And uh, if you sell internationally, you don't. Every customer, there's no customer that represents even 0.1% of our revenue. Yeah. So so you learned. I mean, these are all great things, right? But, yeah. yeah. And and the getting the sauce, the formula right, is is the key, right? It is the key, and it takes time. And as I said, I, um, you know. My previous business was a B2B type of business. And this is hard because a B2B business will typically, especially if there's hard, hardware involved, and if the ticket, I mean, our systems were selling on average $100,000. So it's a big ticket system. Yep. So in, in generally, you have, a, you have a, a team of salespeople, right? even business development people. It's a very different business. From it's a where very you are. different business, yep. but it's always the same thing. You always need to understand the customer psychology to get it true. Now, in a B2B sale, you have to understand, you have to map up the organization that's buying, understand who are the influencers, who's the key decision maker, and so forth. There's a lot of wasted time trying to get through those companies. Long sales cycles as well. Long yeah. sales cycles yeah. as well. So when I started Lander, I was fortunate to have Justin Evans, my co-founder, who was like a superstar at selling at consumers. 
And the first year, I really studied that and I was more like relying on him uh, on these things. And I really realized that, you know, it's easier. It's easier for a reason. We are human beings. We are all consumers. So for the same thing I told you when I was young, looking at an industry and trying to see what would fit within my business, it's the same thing. Every time I use an application, let's say Calm, for relaxation, meditation, and so forth. Yep. It tells me about what I like. Yep. And I know if I like it, others will like it. What do I like about it? So I've been spending the better part of my last four years paying attention to myself yep. as an instrument of reaction to the software being presented to me. So Lander is basically all of those learnings. An amalgam of, of all those things. Yep. Yeah, and because I've always been an avid reader, and I've always paid a lot of attention to design and architecture and photos, but as well to the prose, the way that things are written. I've always loved that. So, you know, so I've, paid, I've seen the difference between some software, like the way that Slack is giving you indications that feels more like a conversation yep. than like dry stuff, right? If you would look at even at the terms of use of Dropbox, the way it's a, it's a, it's a legal contract, but the terms of use can be read in a very, it, it feels like a medium article. Well, it's pretty smooth. Think about, again, going back to what we were talking about, polish, right? So it's, it's another nuance on polish, right? That's right. It's the details that, that, that matter. Um, when you think of the word successful, uh, who's the first person you, you comes to mind? Jeff Bezos. Uh, and, and why? Um, here's a guy. That's one of my, uh, I'd say that, that's one of the most important books I've read as an entrepreneur, the everything store. He's not even part of it. He's the, he's the subject of it, but he hasn't written it. Yep. And it really depicts his beginnings and how he built that huge company. And um, what, what really amazes me is that as a young entrepreneur, I've been told like throughout the 90s and the year 2000s that you can't do too many things at once if you want to execute properly. And here's a guy that starts so many different initiatives and bring them to a certain level of polish that made a lot of sense. Tons of bets, good execution still, right? Yep. And he's competitive like hell. And I kind of like that because, you know, when I was in my 90s, I was looking at Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, and I didn't feel that they were quite the type of guys that I wanted to be as an entrepreneur, right? Steve Jobs, too random in his attitude. And yes, he, he could do wonders, but at the same time, he could say so many stupid things. So I, I, I felt that there was like strong elements to be uh, looked into from mm-hmm. that guy. And Bill Gates, Bill Gates, same thing. I felt he was like a, a radical nerd, very choleric and so forth. I didn't really, and I didn't like the look and feel and the, of, of the Microsoft products. Yep. So... When I looked at Jeff Bezos, I found something that I aspired to, which is be, be, create something huge, right? Something world-class. Yep. I mean, I won't be number one tennis player in the world. I won't be number one, da, 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 but maybe in business, I can be number one in something. And so it's ambition. So I like the ambition. I like the independence of mind as well in Jeff Bezos, his ability to, to be a contrarian to look at things based on what he feels, focused on the facts, 
and not looking at people because people who are giving you comments, they might be themselves uh, lacking confidence. They might be lacking perspective. They might so. I mean, it's so difficult in life to to take criticism at face value and yep. use what really is useful there, but at the same time, not just become too influenced by it. So it's hard, but you got to use people for, for you got to be permeable to people's feedback, but discipline yourself so that you really take what makes sense to you. And that's, that's the hardest part. And Jeff Bezos does that, does that very well. Most people that would think about Jeff Bezos will say that he doesn't listen enough. But it's hard to really do something on the average of what people say. So it's, uh, I think it's true of any, any, any person that's very decisive will give the impression to others that they're not being listened to, but they do influence the recipe. And if you look at what uh, Jeff Bezos has done, the businesses he has, he has bought, if you think about the product he has launched, even the things that haven't been a success, He took a step back and well, he went to, back at it. So you have to be able to or willing to take risks as well, right? I mean, that's the other part of it, right? Uh, you know, not everything that they've done has been successful, right? I mean, <laughs> we can start yeah, to so, list them off, right? Yeah, but there's a, there's a, I mean, business is like gambling. It's to gambling. Something, yeah. No, I mean, you, you, you spend X amount of money yep. and you hope to make 10X, right? So, so the question is, If I spend X, how much can I lose? Maybe I can lose 2X. But if I can make 10X, 50X, on average, on multiple products, I will make maybe 30X, yep. right? So it's, an, it's, an, it's important to understand that everything we do is a bet. And that vulnerability, that understanding, that perspective on what we do is super important to communicate to investors, to, to team members and so forth. We're experimenting. So when you think about that, we're really, we really try to strive to be very good gamblers. And when the part of execution is about optimizing the outcome of your gambles. Right, yes. But the gamble is really at the moment where you decide that you're going to be doing this, committing those resources for that market. It has to be about the market itself, about your own ability to achieve it and deliver it and so forth. And Jeff Bezos has been executing better than anyone else. So he's working like crazy, he's very disciplined, and um, he has managed to, to be a thought leader uh, for his company, but also for investors. He has managed to write a manifest saying, I'm a long-term builder, so if you guys invest for the short term, you better invest in something else. Accepted the risk of valuation on his stock when he said that in the late 90s. And, and, and that's, again, it's independence of mind. And I think true leadership can only be consistent when it's done like that, when it takes people in perspective, but it's basically not the average of it all. It is independent yep. of mind and going somewhere, but he has, been, he has been resilient, he has stayed in, and he has shown the world that you can do big deals, big things if you work very hard, very intelligently, And if you hire well, he's, he's always picking up great people to drive great product lines. Yep. And that's also another thing, right? He's a, he's a, he has a strong personality. He's very impatient. But still, he does find great people to work with him. 
you know, he's, he's done amazing things and, of course, you know, transformative things if you think about how uh, our lives have been affected by Amazon. Um, how do you measure success? Uh, listen, I, I, or define success, let's put it this yeah. way. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think a lot about success, first of all. Uh, I don't really feel I'm successful yet. So, and I, when I think about success, obviously I think Jeff Bezos is successful. I think uh, Slack's founder is successful. I think, I, I, let's put it this way, when you reach a level of market domination for something, uh, where all of your user base are very happy and very satisfied about what you do and you have a big competitive advantage, that's success. And to that extent, I would say the lender-specific initial offering of mastering has reached that point of success. Mm -hmm. So for that, spe that, that piece it is. But uh, success to me in general is, is something that is the end of the road for a specific ambition. Uh, and it's bringing that to that point in a pretty stable and uh, in a stable place that's going to remain like that for, for a long time. So it's not something that just passes by. It's, uh, it's, it's when you reach the finish line. What um, habits or skills uh, do you think are most important to living a successful life? Um, relating to others is a big deal for that, I would say. So... Um, I would say the ability to, to, to build complicities with others is, is essential. Uh, so I'd say complicity. Complicity, and to build complicity, you need to be paying quality time. You need to spend quality time with people. You need to share common fields of interest. Uh, and you need to be protective of them and feel they're protective of you. And... And, you know, it's all about friendship and things like that. And I think in business, it's very similar. It's just that the topic at end is building a business. So it feels like a hockey team or a sports team, right? So I, I don't want to trivialize what we do here, but yeah. I think relationships at work to me in the way, because I'm, I'm an aggressive and competitive person, but person by nature, I see my commitment to others here is to build a winning team in which people will feel that they are winners and have a winning attitude for something that has a purpose, that does something good for society. And, uh, and that's my project. It's not so much about money and so forth. I mean, this is definitely part of the DNA of what makes sense because as a business guy, I invest in other tech companies as well. And um, so for the, the Quebec community, I want to be seen as a guy that brings project that deserves investment Right. Yep. I want to be seen as a as a good leader for businesses. I want to be seen as a thought leader on, you know, what yeah. You know, I'm trying to build uh, to be part of a community of leaders that makes us feel like a tiny Silicon Valley per se. Yep. And that's pretty much all my ambition. So happiness is all about day to day life, the journey itself, in relationship with others. Yep. But it's not empty. It cannot just go be going at the spa every day and talk about nothing. So we need substance. Right, so, so complicity over substance. Fair enough. When you feel overwhelmed or uh, unfocused, uh, what do you do? 
to put yourself back on track. Close my door. Yes. I can do some meditation, can go for a run, can take a glass of wine. But I typically try to, to, to breathe and wait till the following day before making big decisions. I realize that every morning after a bad day, I see things very differently. So I, I, I think when bad news come by, I tend to see the glass half empty. Okay. But, uh, but when, when the next day comes by, I see things way more positively and I see solutions and I'm more optimistic. And so understanding my variations in, in, uh, in, uh, in my up moods and down moods and now the impact, how I interact with others, that's been a big finding for me. As a young entrepreneur, I was like, uh, I guess I was really rock and roll emotionally speaking with others. And I mean, you can't just be as good as you can with your emotional little, uh, uh, IQ. So once you face your limitations, I guess it's not trying to be as constructive as you can. And when you can't, well, just at least be neutral. So in a bad mood, I read and I get rid of the stuff that's been parked there yep. for a while. And yeah. then as soon as I become more like inspired and inspiring, then I spread myself, go into meetings and talk to people about stuff and become more of a real driving force. Do you have any mindfulness uh, practices? You talked about uh, Calm. Uh, do you do things of that nature? Yeah, well, Calm is my app. Yep. Uh, Insight Timer I really liked as well, but uh, these days I'm using a lot of like, Calm. So at night when I go to bed, I try to read at least half an hour because mm -hmm. I realize it really puts me into a, a calmer state. Yep. And then I listen to a meditation uh, on sleep okay. or you know, gratefulness or yep, any yep, type of yep. topics. Yep. But I just like sit there and I go uh, into sleep that way. And uh, so that's a big deal. And during the day, every now and then, I listen to one of those meditation things. Uh, I realize that I don't breathe well. And most of us don't. So, that's true. So Absolutely that's something, true. That's something, uh, breathing, it's crazy how unnatural the, the techniques that they show you uh, in mindfulness for breathing feels unnatural, yep. but how much just doing them... Makes a huge difference, right? Makes a huge difference in calming you. And it takes literally like a minute or two minutes. You just uh, think about it, uh, step aside yeah. and do some of this and uh, you feel completely like physically, right? Uh, different, right? Absolutely. Yep. You, you, take, you realize that all your stress grows on you and... Uh, Forcing you to step like that is just giving you a step back from yeah. even the even changing you your posture makes a makes a big difference. Yeah, in the, how you how you sort of think about things. Um, what is something that you believe that other people think is uh, insane? I believe in in the competition yes. aspect of building a business is essential to consider because I think is the only way to win is to build from the get-go. So I believe in investing way more aggressively and right from the, so not spending too much time trying to think about how are you going to survive if it doesn't, it doesn't work. Just go all in. Just go all in. And obviously it's more expensive. You need to finance it more aggressively and so forth. But 
I, I believe in there's going to be somebody in the world that's going to be in that position before we are if we don't do that. So I always do things like there is by default another company just like ours that's doing everything we, we're thinking about doing. So I don't know who they are, but yep. I built assuming there are. Yep. And I think, I'm not sure we should say this is competitive. It's just, I think in a way it's defensive. It's thinking about who could be better than us and who could be a better version of us. So right. I don't think a lot of people think that way, but I really think that this is a race in which we don't see the other runners. It's an invisible race, but they emerge down the road. And I think that's why not that many uh, companies, especially here in Quebec, emerge from competition. Because the rare people who do is because they think that way. Um, are there um, any misconceptions about you, do you think? <laughs> uh, well, not as much as there used to be. <laughs> okay. uh, but in general, I'd say because um, I can be quite intense, yeah. I would say, and I'll, I'll use the example of newer employees, uh, some people in a meeting can find that I'm a bit intimidating and intense, and people don't realize how much I can smile and be laughing and be smooth and many other things. So yep. I think my extremes is that I move from very intense to very laid back and, and relaxed. So that's something. I, uh, I probably would be better at what I do if I, my range was a little bit better contained. But at the same time, again, I told you about like uh, Jeff Bezos earlier on. Uh, I mean, you have to be able to accept yourself as well. So as much as you want to improve, yep. I mean, you are who you are. And part True. of the recipe is the downsides of who you are, of, uh, of your upsides. So, uh, yeah, so I think this is my, uh, this is my take. Uh, do you have any uh, morning rituals that you practice? Ah, reading the paper <laughs> is very simple. It's, uh, I, I don't know if it's a ritual, but it's, uh, it's shower, coffee, paper. Do you get up super early? Or like what time do you usually get up? Uh, typically about 6.30. Okay. Hot shower. Yep. I love it. This is like one of my favorite moments, just like yeah, warm is, water. People are fascinated with this stuff, right? Like uh, uh, some people are cold, some people hot, yeah, right? <laughs> that is my side. And, yeah. and I don't take my emails before I'm done with the paper. Okay. Because I can get bad emails and I really want at least to have that first hour in my day that is not contaminated by one bad news from business or something. Right, 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 right. Right, because my personality is like that. I, I have maybe 100 emails waiting for me and, in the morning or something, yep. many of them are crap, but it only take one bad news or like one big challenge or one big stress. It sets you up for the day, and right? Then yep. I just like take it in and then I feel the stress and I feel it more than I ever felt it. So I, 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 I used to not understand so much how I'm feeling things, yep. how I'm feeling stress and now I know exactly it. So I'm really trying to place it in a place where I can manage it better. Yep. But I still need to get better at this. So you have so you read your paper. I read my paper. Do you paper. have coffee, tea? I use I take I have coffee, filter coffee. Okay. And uh, peanut butter. Okay. On toast. Just just pe okay, on, on toast. toast, okay. On toast. Yeah. And uh, and a banana or some fruits. Okay. And uh, it's really boring, but I really read really, my and music. So music. So I have sound systems 
in every are you, room. Are you, are you an audiophile? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an audiophile. So I have sound systems in every room in my house. That's a separate conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then it's, uh, that's the thing. Like my, right. my basically the song in the morning. Right. The thing I'll listen that just like, that puts me in my best place. Do you have a certain playlist or does it change all the time? No, it's always album. I'm still uh, an album type of guy. Okay. Especially if I'm alone. Like vinyl. Uh, no, no, no. Okay. Uh, no, album. But, okay. But still okay. an album. Okay. Still right. an album. Okay. But it's uh, and typically it's uh, I'd say it's progressive music or electronic music. A lot of electronic music, but electronic music like uh, jazz, mm-hmm. progressive music yep. would yep. be yep. done. You know. Yeah. Cool. So more on the more on simple uh, composition yep. than overloaded ones. Okay. I really like that. So I'd say electronic composition. I'm a big fan of. So that's at your mood for the day. That's my mood for the day. You're still not checking emails, right, until this point? No, I check emails when I just Come stand to- up from my chair to go to the office, and then I read them, and then I typically I'll make a call right from, as soon as I'm, I'm in the car. Okay. And then at the office, and then uh, the day never really happens starts. the way it was planned. Uh, do you have any... Um, evening? Like, What's your evening routine? So when you finish uh, from the office... Do you do you unplug? Do you do you continue working? Do you? Uh, I have a hard time not taking my emails. So that's yes. an issue. So I typically have a, a backlog. So I'd say I arrive home around six thirty-seven, mm-hmm. and then I have uh, dinner with my spouse. Then we watch something on TV, but I'll be looking at my emails every now and then. Not so much because they come in, just because yeah. I want to make sure there is nothing urgent that I haven't answered. Right. But I'm typically trying to stop looking at my emails at nine. Okay. And then trending toward going to bed at around eleven, eleven thirty. Do Do you have a system of email? Uh, how you're treating emails? Do you sort of uh, categorize them? Do you deal with them as they come in? Or I erase specific? them. As, <laughs> I I erase ninety five percent of emails that I read at first. Yes. Then I put them into bins. The one I keep in my inbox right. are the things that needs to be processed. Um, yeah, so it turns to be uh, insufficient these days. I have just too much stuff. But at the stage I'm at, I should probably hire an assistant. I don't. I still don't. Um, and, you know, I always prefer to invest in a, in an engineer to develop something. Yeah, yeah. So, well, that's where uh, you put your money, right? A hundred people <laughs> and I still can't uh, see myself uh, favoring an, an, an assistant over... Uh, Somebody to help build the product. Yeah, I hear you. Um, we spoke about books uh, throughout the conversation. So, um, are there any specific books that you uh, gift or that that you um, uh, that you would suggest to people? Well, I, I read a lot of uh, fiction books, but mm-hmm. uh, if I stay within uh, within tech and business, I would say one of the books I really think is a very quick read. And it's getting a little bit outdated, but still, it's something that I see lots of young entrepreneurs forgetting about. It's a book called Crossing the Chasm. Yeah. It's a classic. Mm-hmm. Just understanding how to define a product so it has a real purpose is a big deal. And then understanding how to get a market to accept a new product and the method by which you start building uh, a market for the product category as opposed to sell your product. And anyway, the methodology is, is very straightforward. Yep. And that's something when I read that, 
as a young entrepreneur, there was a before and after. It really simplified and disciplined my approach to go to market. So I really like that. And uh, yeah, and I, and I would say, and I want to add one thing. I mean, I read every day the Stratechery blog from Ben Thompson. Okay, that's a must read for anybody wanting to understand how to build a tech business. Uh, it's uh, Ben Thompson is a former analyst that now has a blog every day. He posts about uh, Uber, Google, Apple, and uh, all the big transactions that happen, okay. but from a business model standpoint. Okay, interesting. And if you read that for a few years, you never think the same way anymore because it's true. It's also about consumers, Yep. but it's really the theory of aggregation, how basically you build value in the market, and as you aggregate, this becomes more and more integrated into a single offering, which become trivialized and so forth, but it's how value chains are be being uh, optimized and improved over time. And it might look very theoretical, but there is no way to succeed in the tech business if you don't understand these. Because it's one thing to build a software platform, yep. but you have to see who is going to be disrupting you as well. So it's very important from that standpoint, understanding what, what uh, long-lasting value can you really create into whatever you're doing at this point. Uh, what uh, advice would you give any uh, smart, uh, driven college or university student uh, about to enter the real world? Um, you got to read. It, it's, it's very important to understand in a world that is as competitive and efficient as we have today, anything you do, you have to understand how good are the people that are going to be competing with you and what you do and basically set the bar as high as you can and achieve it over time. It's, it's, it doesn't lead anybody to go anywhere but not to face the highest competition. So, and the highest competition is rarely going to be standing next to you. It's going to be something you don't know. But I, the most thrilling life, professional life, is the one that enables you to stay competitive for decades and decades and decades. And when you're 20, what's going to be uh, keeping your curiosity and like uh, keeping you engaged 20 years later has to do with that. It's about the stuff. The, it's the position you'll be in, not from a, from a financial standpoint, from a knowledge standpoint, so that you can then really become a true leader by thought, by experience, and by ambition and so forth. Because And it goes to complicity. It, for the same reason, it's great for human beings to have kids, yep. to enjoy paternity. Business paternity, it doesn't have to be a business you start. It can just be a team you manage. But yeah, when you become a mentor or a coach for a team, for a given project, and you have a clear goal for that with, that's linked with the highest ambitions, that's very gratifying. And gratification is what keeps you going at it and going at it. So there's a number of things that are, there's a number of simple principles that keep someone happy throughout a career, throughout projects, whatever is the yep. career. What are you most optimistic about? Oh, my kids. <laughs> my kids, no, seriously, I would say... Um, well, the fact that uh, human beings are, 
becoming more and more sensible to how they eat, to how they treat the planet, to, to I think, people in general as, as, as individuals and as a society, we're becoming more and more considerate of the impact of our decisions. And that's becoming more and more uh, shared yeah. by, by most people. So, and that's becoming part of the political scene. So I'm very positive about that. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think this is for the best. And I'm also uh, very positive that in 30 years from now, four years from now, you won't be able to have a Donald Trump as a president anywhere. You will, you, you will not be able to do this. I think it's, it's generational. Yep. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll find a way to bring people together in a positive way. Uh, and we'll have leaders that are aligned with who we'd like to be. I certainly hope so. I think, you know, new generations coming through are of that same mindset. So hopefully this continues in this direction. Yeah. Um, any parting uh, words for the, uh, for the listening audience? Well, I encourage everyone to be very uh, ambitious and uh, have high standards for themselves. Because that, makes, I mean, for every aspect of our lives, uh, when we're proud about what we did, the odds that we smile the following day are much bigger. So, uh, so that's what I'm looking for. Uh, people who are basically happy about what they did and uh, stay in a very healthy position with themselves and with others. Awesome. Pascal, thank you so much again. It's been most insightful and uh, really appreciate taking the time to, uh, to talk to us. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions or suggestions you may have. Uh, you can find me on twitter.com slash spotter. That's S-P-O-T-R. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And um, one last thing, if you really want to help out the podcast, um, the number one thing you can do is leave a five-star review on iTunes or if you're a Google person on the Google Play Store or wherever you receive your podcast, uh, head on over there and please leave a five-star review. Um, I ask this not because I want the vanity of five-star reviews, but really because it feeds back into the recommendation engines which then means that the podcast will be recommended to more people. And the more downloads it gets, the better guests I can get on the show. So that really helps out. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>